The Apostle Paul in Galatians 5 says, for in verse 13, For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. You can't bite without getting bitten, and if you get bitten, you're going to get eaten, is what he's saying. But I say, Galatians 5.16, walk by the Spirit. That's walk in the power supplied by God the Holy Spirit, and you will not carry out, you will not be able to carry out. It will be impossible, absolutely impossible. I'm, it's the Greek. It will be absolutely impossible for you to carry out the lust of the flesh. Walking by the Spirit means you cannot fulfill the lust of the flesh, according to the Apostle Paul in Galatians 5.16. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, that you may not do the things that you please. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality. Those are three sexual categorical statements that have to do with sexual sin. Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy. These are the Christian churchy sins. Enmities, jealousy, strife, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions. Disputes, dissensions, factions. That's really when you're in church leadership. Okay, Disputes, dissensions, factions. Envying, drunkenness, carousing. Now we're to the people that don't go to church. So we had the sexual sins, and now we're back to the people outside of church, uh, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. He's not giving you an exhaustive list, of which, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now this is very telling about exactly how he means what he's saying. Listen to verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, can I put a little Greek flavor? If we are living by the Spirit, if we have the life that God has given us, And it's an ongoing fact because of an initial beginning of this life. If we're living by the Spirit, then let us walk by the Spirit. Let us... Is he saying the same thing twice? No. If we have settled the question of whether we believe in Christ as our Savior and therefore are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, if we've been baptized by the Spirit into Christ, then let us walk Let us live out that which is true by position. Let us live it out in our experience. Let us walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Tonight we're talking about personal sin and how it affects the spiritual life, the believer's spiritual life, especially when we talk about fellowship with God, enjoying communion or the one another relationship between us and God and what happens when we deal with personal sin. And I think Galatians 5 is one of the clearest statements about it's one or the other. Either you're going to commit personal sin or you're going to walk in dependence on the Holy Spirit. It cannot be both at the same time. It can be both by the same person. The Galatians are boasting and uh, challenging one another and envying one another. Paul has to call them down for their fleshly practices. And see, they're not walking by the Spirit even though they are living by the Spirit. They have the life 
that God gives when you first believe, but they aren't enjoying it in their practice. And making that distinction is not something I just do because I like to do theology. It's something that the scriptures demand that we distinguish between someone having life and someone living it. Someone having life and walking by the Spirit. And so let's take a moment for silent prayer, make sure we're in fellowship with God. This is why we do this. This exactly right here, what we're talking about tonight is why we do the silent prayer moment. Because you have to deal with the breakdown of fellowship between us and God through personal sin. And the Bible says throughout the scriptures, not just in 1 John 1, 9, but throughout the scriptures, God doesn't like sin and we have to own what we've done. The very first sinner is named Eve, but the very first responsible sinner that got us all killed is named Adam. And Adam uh, is accountable when the Lord shows up for their I think normally scheduled visit when the Lord comes in the cool of the day and walks in the garden, he asks Adam a question of accountability. Where are you, Adam? I think this is what we're talking about. Adam is broken. He is separated from God through personal sin. There is a breakdown and God is saying, look at yourself. And I don't think, and I don't think this is just for unbelievers, for people that haven't yet received Christ as their savior. I think this is for all of us we need to own our sin, to tell the truth about what we've done. That's why the moment for silent prayer, the most clear statement I know of in Scripture is 1 John 1, 9, but it's not the only one. What you do to get cleansed is not agonize, although we'll read from David tonight about how he agonized over his sin, but that's not what you do uh, to deal with your personal sin as far as cleansing. God offers cleansing to every believer on the basis of the grace through Jesus Christ and his blood at the cross. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I give you a moment for silent prayer before we open in prayer. Our Father, we praise you and thank you for this eternal life that we're enjoying, not just that we um, have it, but that we live it, not just that we have life or that we're, we're born again to a new life in Christ, but that by your Spirit, we can walk in this newness of life. We can experience fellowship with you. We can uh, have your things, your righteousness in common with you. Father, it's an exclusive, um, it's an exclusive membership. No one gets there to fellowship with you except through your son and we all have because of what he did for us at the cross we we bless you and praise you for that work for through your son saving us and now father help us know you we don't come to the scriptures to know about you we don't come to the scriptures to know what they say father something far greater is our objective we want you we want to know you on your terms as laid down by the prophets of the old testament and the apostles and prophets of the new testament help us know you in christ's name Amen. I read to open tonight from uh, Galatians chapter 5. Um, if you turn the page in my Bible, um, it's page 1826 <laughs> in the giant print New American Standard uh, reference Bible. But if you turn the page, you get the book of Ephesians. Yeah, the Ephesians, Galatians, Ephesians, G E P C. Um, and if you go to Ephesians 4. I want to highlight the severity, um, the issue of personal sin in the believer's life. 
In uh, Ephesians 4.17, we're just jumping in. I know we're just kind of parachuting into a place where we haven't read the whole thing and we don't know the context, but just listen to some of the paragraph. In verse 17 of Ephesians 4, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer, just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding. See, Paul isn't saying that if you're a true believer, then you can't walk like an unbeliever. He's saying, don't do it. See, that's so vital, I think, and we're developing the theology of Christian spirituality. This is, this is just an observation here. Don't walk like these people darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them, because of the hardness of their hearts. Why are they excluded from the life of God? Ignorance. Ignorance excludes you from the life of God. Knowing God through what he said is life. That's what Jesus said in John 17. This is life that they may know you and Jesus Christ. And so, verse 19 of Ephesians 4, they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. This is uh, language that addresses the illicit satisfaction of sexual urges and appetites. It's the illicit satisfaction of a God-given blessing that has now been corrupted by the sin nature that's what he's talking about sexual sin but you did not learn christ this way notice the way paul describes the whole world is it's all basically submissive to the flesh in sexual sin now let's talk about that just for a minute because it's so vital it's so summary oh those christians always want to talk about sex and uh, and fornication and beat up on sexual sin watch why this is so vital there are a couple of key appetites God has given us to, to live this life. A couple of really important appetites. One is personal connection. If you don't hold babies, the Soviets, I think, did the experiments. If you don't hold babies when they're babies, they die. You can feed them and give them the right temperature and everything, but if you don't hold them and love them, they die. They're, we're made for the satisfaction of that need, that appetite for connection, for love. See, that's not sexual. That's, no, Freud would say it's sexual. It's not sexual. It's just how we're made. There's nothing sexual about hunger when your body needs to eat. Have you ever gone a couple of, a couple of meals without eating? You kind of skip breakfast, skip lunch, get toward dinner. Have you ever noticed how good saltine crackers are, salted or unsalted, if you haven't eaten in 16 hours? Or 36 hours? If you've, if you've, have you ever had to go without food and you're all of a sudden a little bit of food is, oh! It's so good. Well, that's your appetite. That's how God made you. He made you with this need to eat. Have you ever really needed a glass of water? You get some cool water and you're so thirsty and it's better than anything you could ever imagine. Have you ever had that experience? I had it. I had it once. We were in Kuwait and then in Iraq and they ran out of water. That's crazy. They're in Mesopotamia. There's rivers everywhere. No water. Well, no, no potable water, no water you could drink or you would care to drink. You could drink it, but you won't, you know, enjoy what happens. And um, we had two bottles of water a day in April in Iraq. Now, April, that's not, that's not that hot. It's only up in the 120s. You know, two bottles of water a day. Now, they're liter bottles. And then, and then they said, you know, we're really hurting, but it's down to one bottle a day. And you need to make that last couple of days now, guys. And uh, boy, that, when you get that, when you find a source of water and you can drink all you want 
after you've been out in the heat trying to get some stuff done, oh, it's so good, but that's a God-given appetite. And it has a legitimate fulfillment, a legitimate satisfaction. Can you illegitimately eat? Can you fulfill the urge and desire to eat in a wrong way? Is it possible to, to, I mean, we just read carousing. Carousing doesn't mean running around with your friends at night. It means overeating, I think. I think that's what the Greek word is talking about. Can you satisfy the legitimate thing of appetite more than you should? I would really like a sandwich or six, right? And there's a legitimate satisfaction of this urge, and there's an illegitimate uh, use of it. And, and the way you, uh, you do it wrongly is you do too much of it. Well, guess what? God gave us the appetites for sexual uh, contact, but he gave us a a context for that contact, and it's marriage. It's God's blessing of marriage. Watch it in Genesis 2. When God created woman, he created simultaneously marriage and the sign of the covenant of marriage, sex. And everywhere you find the concept of this contact, this blessing of sexual satisfaction and fulfillment, it is a marital context everywhere in the scriptures. God thinks so highly of marriage that when Abraham and Sarah are trying to figure out how they're going to make sure God keeps his word with the Abrahamic covenant, they try this Hagar thing. It is not going to be through Hagar and Ishmael. It is not going to be through any other wife. It is going to be through your wife, your one wife, Sarah. People say, well, look at the Old Testament, look at Genesis. The Bible advocates uh, polygamy. I don't think it does. I don't think there, you can point to any place in the scriptures where polygamy is, is sanctified or a good thing. Now, God is gracious to us, and he forgives us, and he overlooks and, and, and is merciful some, but I just, for example, people say, well, Jacob, he had two wives, and then their, their maids were his wives, concubines' wives. So he had four wives, Jacob, you know, boy, this is a rabbit trail to chase down. You know, the Leah, his first wife, I think his only legitimate wife, in my thinking, the way I think about marriage, he had one man and one woman in Genesis 2. That's what God designed. That wife that God gave him was not the one he picked. Laban pulled a Jacob and, and uh, made sure Jacob was all merry and, uh, and boozed up a little bit. And then when he went into his tent, a little groggy, the wrong, the wrong sister was in the tent. And uh, he consummated a marriage with a girl he didn't intend to marry. And all of a sudden, he's married to Leah when he wakes up in the morning. You can't undo that. Do you know that Judah and Levi came from Leah? Leah was not beloved of Jacob. He didn't want her, but he got her. He didn't think she was attractive somehow or whatever the issue was. He really had it for Rachel, but he wasn't that interested in Leah. And yet, we get Jesus Christ, Moses, the Levitical priesthood, all through Leah, whom God honored who is the first, the wife. Very interesting, isn't it? That God honors his institution of marriage. So when you come to this concept of personal sin in Ephesians and the spiritual life and walking as we're supposed to walk, Paul immediately goes to sexual sin. Why is it that? that because it is one of the, the basic appetites that God has given us where he has given us the legitimate place for fulfilling, satisfying that appetite. And what we in our sinfulness do is we choose to fulfill it in any possible way but how God said to do it. And guess what you get? You get a curse. There's no blessing there. 
It's not what God wants. It's not how he wants. And so you find that you're not walking like he wants you to walk. But see, you didn't learn Christ this way in terms of these sexual practices. If indeed you've heard him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, verse 22, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. You be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. See, it's not sinful to have these legitimate appetites. It's sinful to satisfy these legitimate appetites in a sinful way, in a disobedient way. And so we're bigots for saying that in the world we live in, but this world is deceived and critical thinking is out the window. And um, so, so Paul is talking about living the Christian life and putting aside the old self, not, not the sin nature, but the life you live, which was dominated by the sin nature. Yeah, and it is putting the sin nature, but the old self doesn't mean the sin nature. It means you under its control. You, that's not who you are now. You put aside this empty manner of life, he's saying. Therefore, verse 25 of Ephesians 4, laying aside falsehood, now we've gone from sexual sin to verbal Laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So don't lie to each other. Tell the truth. Be angry, yet do not sin. See, not verbal sin, not emotional or mental attitude sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not give the devil an opportunity. See, if you harbor, if you harbor your anger, it sours overnight. That's what he's saying. You, you put it aside and you, you, you let it go. Have you ever slept on it without dealing with it? You don't wake up better off because you've put it aside. You've, you've pushed it to the right and you said, I'll deal with that tomorrow. Scarlett O'Hara, I'll deal with that tomorrow. 39, 1939, best movie. Anyway, um, I, I don't want to deal with my anger now. I just want to go to bed. Paul says, don't do that. Don't let the sun go down on your anger because you give the devil an opportunity. That sour anger turns to what? Gall. It turns to bitterness. And then you're not necessarily feeling the the physical effects of anger. You've just got the spiritual aftermath. You've got the spiritual dregs of bitterness. And now you have an attitude, a cast of mind characterized by that which was anger before. He who steals must steal no longer. Rather, he must labor, performing with his own hands what's good so they have something to share with the one who has need. That's an interesting take on stealing. You're taking from what someone else has to satisfy your own needs. Paul says your your worldview is completely backwards. You should work with your own hands so that you have something to give the person who himself is in need. Isn't that amazing? Instead of thinking of like, I'm going to just say, he could spare a little. I'm going to take a little here, a little there. I mean, I'm just trying to get by. Instead of that, you, instead of becoming a leech, you become the source of blessing for someone else. It's awesome the way the biblical worldview totally changes from what the flesh says of I'm going to snag some, some little, little, little leech off here, leech off there, a little sucker there, and you become the source of the blessing. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. The pastor spontaneously bursts into flames. Uh, but only such a word as is good. Come on now. 
oh, am I the only one that struggles with that verse? No, I'm not the only one that struggles with that verse, but some of you struggle a little more and some of you a little less. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. See, instead of you being consumed with your anger and unwholesomely speaking out of anger or out of other sources of depravity, sexual depravity, uh, you know, whatever makes your mouth or your words unwholesome, whatever the, the cast of mental attitude sin that is giving uh, rise to what you say, instead of just using your mouth to vent your wickedness, you should be thinking about the ears around you. And so what your words need to do is feed those ears with edification. And it's a totally different way of thinking. See, I'm in my own head about what I, you know, I'm just a vent for my own wickedness. But no, I'm supposed to be a wellspring of, of water, of, of spiritual water, spiritual, spirit-filled psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to edify those around me. This is Ephesians 4. He's getting to chapter 5. All right. Now, he's talking. What's he talking about all through this passage? What, what's the concept? What's the, what's the context? It's okay to share if, you, if you've got an idea. What, what is the topic? We've read it. What's he talking about? Well, it's, it's, it, there's a sexual side of it. There's a verbal side of it. Don't lie. There's this don't steal. There's the, the anger side of it, mental attitude. There's, there's no unwholesome word. What's the, what's the topic? Ephesians 4, 17 through 25, what's he talking about? Well, yeah, they don't steal from verse 30. Come on now. No, no, it is grieving. It is grieving the Holy Spirit. But what grieves the Holy Spirit is the question I'm asking. What's he talking about? Sin, yeah, impurity. He's talking about personal sin. All the different types of personal sin. If you want to do a study on sin, go to Ephesians 4, 17. Oh, wait, that's what we're doing, through 25. He's talking about personal sin, and that's why, uh, sorry, through verse 29, that's why he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. See, when he says don't do it, He's not by that command indicating that you can't do it. That's not what the language means. What he's saying is that you can, but you shouldn't. In fact, don't do it. See, if I, but if I've got a theological system that won't allow for that, then I'm going to try to force this into being, well, this is why believers can't sin. Or this is why believers can't grieve the Spirit. No, you do whenever an unwholesome word proceeds from your mouth. This is the problem with our spiritual lives. This is the problem in Ephesus. Ephesus was a pretty solid outfit. You've read Revelation 2 and 3, the letters to the seven churches. Ephesus, Ephesus is pretty solid. I mean, they've left their first love, but otherwise, you know, they've got pretty solid doctrine. Well, here, they uh, have cause to be challenged about their personal sin and what it does to their relationship with God. And I, I was first directed to this concept from my pastor. And I think he was first directed to this concept from Lewis Sperry Chafer. And when you look up in Lewis Sperry Chafer's systematic theology, what uh, must a believer do to be filled by the Spirit? He's got three things, and this here's one of them. Three things that you need to do, according to Chafer, to be filled by the Spirit. Grieve not the Spirit. Don't grieve Him. It's a negative. What do you think the second one is? It's also a negative. First Thess 5, 19. 
quench not the Spirit, is the way Chafer thought of it. So two things you don't want to do, whatever those are. And then Romans, Romans 6, the way Chafer outlined it, Romans 6, yield to the Spirit. Yield to God, and, the, and God will do the thing. That's Chafer's method. That's Chafer's little three-step thing. What I'm going for is not to give you Chafer's theology, though. It's an interesting way this has been used. What I want to say is that the whole thing about your relationship with God can be summarized in a word, fellowship. And he wants to enjoy you and for you to enjoy him. I think the prettiest picture of that in the Bible is John 17, 1 through 5, the reciprocal love between the Father and the Son. Give me more so that I can glorify you more. I've, you gave me what you gave me and I glorified you with it. Now glorify me some more so I can glorify you. And it's this beautiful reciprocation of love that you've given to me and I took that, I took that and I, I turned that into love for you and then you loved me more and then I loved you more with what you gave me. And that's, that's what God wants for us. It's called, I think that's what fellowship is getting at. And so when you talk about personal sin and then you throw in this summary command in verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit, of course it's the effect on the personal relationship the personal enjoyment of fellowship with God. Now see, I, I, don't, I won't say that God is up in heaven or the Holy Spirit's in your heart boo-hooing because you're committing personal sins. I won't say that because I've got too, many, too much scripture on the, the bliss and joy of God. God isn't hurt by you. I don't think that's, I, I, I believe in omnipotence. I believe in a, a, a present, omnipresent Imminent and transcendent creator who's with us. He's everywhere present in creation. He's not part of it. He transcends it, but he's everywhere present. I believe in that doctrine. I believe in all the historic Christian faith, but what I'm trying to say is I don't think that our failures uh, cause God to kind of to, to miss out on anything. I don't think he's diminished one little bit by our failings. And yet, here's the description. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. I think the issue, what I'm trying to say is there's a personal relationship that is stymied, that is diminished, that is grieved when we commit personal sins and therefore put on the old self. We walk after the lust of the flesh in our old self. But see, the new self in Christ is being renewed by the Word and the power of the Holy Spirit, and it's one or the other. Galatians 5, do not uh, or walk by the Spirit and you will absolutely not be able to fulfill the lust of the flesh. Ephesians 4, put on or put aside the old self with its lusts and put on the new self and walk by the Spirit. And don't commit these categories of personal sin or live in them. And certainly by them do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And then he talks about sin some more. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. See, personal sins of the tongue, uh, slander, and let's, let's, let's categorize. Verse 31, bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor. I'll go with clamor and slander as verbal and bitterness and anger and wrath as mental attitude sins. Is that okay? Something that you could do toward me and I would never hear about it. But when you open your mouth and vent, now I get anger and clamor, clamor and wrath and um, slander. Let these be put away from you along with all malice. Back to mental attitude sins. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. The fruit of the Spirit, kindness, 
See, that it's, Paul thinks the same thoughts in the, across the books that he wrote. This is the fruit of the Spirit. Don't grieve the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. Okay. I'm trying to present the case that personal sin is worse than we probably think. As much as you probably think it's pretty noisome, you know what noisome means? It means you can smell it, and it isn't good. I think that's one of my favorite English words, noisome. Because it should mean that you hear something, noisome, but it means that it smells so bad you can hear it. <laughs> that really stinks. No matter how bad you think your sin stinks, you probably don't think bad enough of it. No matter how much I reject my sin, no matter how much I am put off by my sin, no matter how much my sin bothers me, it probably doesn't bother me enough. Because I don't have the, I don't have the spiritual sensitivity, and I, I don't think I ever will, to fully grasp God's perfect righteousness. I think you have to be God to have the sensitivity that he has, that his righteousness requires. But yet my sin is a transgression of that standard. My sin is a transgression of that standard. And I'm supposed to be having fellowship with God as one bought by his son's blood. And yet I'm walking in the darkness that required that blood to be shed as a, pers- as a, as a person walking, a Christian walking in sin. And so uh, Paul is, through this epistle, really encouraging the believer to embrace his birthright. Oh yes, your birthright, Ephesians 1.14 The Lord Jesus has given you as a pledge of your inheritance the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In Him, in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Christ, in Him, with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. The presence of the Holy Spirit in you, the indwelling ministry, the sealing ministry, the filling ministry, the baptizing ministries of the Holy Spirit are the pledge of the inheritance, the initial capitalization, that seed money of the inheritance. This is your birthright to walk by the Spirit. Fellowship with God empowered by the very Spirit of God to walk in this new life. This is your birthright. And so when we grieve the Spirit... We're, we're the prodigal. We're wasting our inheritance. I like to preach on sin. I, I like to preach on sin. I make you not want to do it. But I like to talk and teach, I like to teach through the scriptures more because there's a theological motivation here that I couldn't have done if I just made you feel guilty for your sin. You ready for it? You should hate your sin. But there's something, there's something so awesome in Ephesians 4 about the grieving of the Spirit that helps motivate me not to want to commit personal sin even more than I just hate it or it makes me, breaks my conscience or, or something. It is the waste of an opportunity to walk within my birthright, to live out who I've been called to be. Now, that's way better to me than you should really feel sorry for how, what a bad boy you are. It's a much better motivation. And uh, my prayer for you is that you, you catch this vision. Personal sin is way worse than you think. And I, I, when I first came 
I, w I knew I was young and didn't know much. And now I know that I'm not quite as young and still don't know much. But I've always said that this pulpit is always going to be about the grace of God. We are. And some people will tend to say, well, personal sin is just something Jesus paid for at the cross. Don't have to be so worried about it. You know you did it. You know you're going to do it again. You know what your problems are, what your tendencies are. Just don't get so wrapped around the axle about it. You young preachers like to get worried about it, but as you get older, you learn that sin isn't so, you know, it's not such a big deal. Well, it, yeah, it is. It, it will continue to be the killer of your spiritual joy and your experience of the spiritual life. Personal sin wrecks the empowerment of the Spirit in your life. You cannot commit personal sins while you're walking in dependence on the power of the Holy Spirit. What verse is that? You can't commit personal sins in the, in the same moment that you're walking by the Spirit. What, do anybody know what verse that is? Galatians 5, verse 16. Galatians 5, 16. By the way, the upper room discourse is John 13 through 17. And the place where you cannot obey the, or walk by the, the, the Spirit and at the same time fulfill the lust of the flesh is Galatians 5.16. It's not a proof text. It's just a really important topic statement for what he develops there. It's the thesis of what he, what he says further. Well, why don't we, uh, why don't we do something that um, takes you on a totally different tack? Why don't we do something that no one expects except Joel, who has already seen my notes? Why don't we turn in our Bibles to the middle, to Psalm 51. If you find yourself in Proverbs, keep going. If you see Psalm 52, you're almost there. Psalm 51. I have to tell you, I have no... Uh, <laughs> I have no idea what I might be doing right now besides what we're doing right now, but I can't think of, of anything more enjoyable than thinking through this with you, than thinking through what God has told us about our spiritual lives. Oh, I have to turn that back on now. In Psalm 51, you have a very dramatic presentation, which we will enjoy for the next several visits on spirituality between Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights. First hour Sunday, family Bible hour, and then, then Wednesday night. Um, you have a very dramatic presentation of David's cry for cleansing, David's cry for restoration. And uh, it's 19 verses of genius, poetry. And uh, we might be able to share just a few of them tonight but um this is not a christian passage i mean in its original statement is it david's not a christian right um i, I hope you, everyone's clear on what i mean by that um we have paul saying that moses uh suffered for the sake of christ um but, um, but David is a, is a believer, for sure. I don't doubt Old Testament regeneration, even. 
but I, but I do draw a distinction between what we're experiencing today and what David experienced in his day. Um, again, I really rely heavily on John 7 and the streams of living water and the fact of the Holy Spirit in every believer as our inheritance today because of our union with Christ. And this was not possible before the glorification of Jesus Christ. So you have something different back in these days. You have different arrangements that, in which God had entered with his people. And um, very interestingly, David has the Holy Spirit. If you watch the story of King David and of King Saul in 1 Samuel, this is a big deal in the, the story of the early kings. The first king of Israel was Saul, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Male, Hebrew word, male to be filled. And um, apparently, whoever God anointed as the king had a special endowment, a special giving, an empowerment from the Spirit of God to be the king. But this is not new if you watch the Old Testament closely. Numbers 14, Moses is having a bad day. It's too hard, Lord. I don't have enough resources. Give me some more people. I need some help. God says, okay, give me 70 elders. And then they all prophesy because the Holy Spirit resides, rests, it says, Navach, on the 70 elders. And they all prophesy, but they don't do it again. And the, the lesson of Numbers 14 is that you don't need any more help than I've given you in the Holy Spirit. Moses, you plus God equals an infinite majority. You're fine. That's the message. There's a, a small, very small number of people in the Old Testament are said to have the presence of the Spirit in them. Now, I, I do believe the, the Holy Spirit was with them because we have Jesus saying that to the disciples. He who is with you will be in you. You know him in, in the upper room discourse. He who is with you will be in you. But some people in the Old Testament had this blessing of the the indwelling presence of the spirit of god the third person of the trinity the holy spirit and uh, theologians i think have rightly identified this ministry as endowment a special temporary provision i say it's nothing new moses had this bezalel had it he built the ark of the covenant the tabernacle and aaron's clothing bezalel and the craftsman had a special empowerment from the holy spirit as you walk through the old testament on this there's just a very small one one or two people here and there had the work of god the spirit in them the judges are some of our favorites the judges and all the the miraculous stories of what happened with the judges it's the holy spirit empowering them you know people say samson was strong because he had long hair no, Samson said that. God didn't say that. Samson said that. So that when Delilah had his hair cut, God's like, okay. But actually, the Bible says that Samson received the empowerment of God the Holy Spirit. That's why he had power. You could say, well, no, 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 no. He was a Nazarite, and so if you break the Nazarite, it wasn't about the hair. It was about the Spirit of God. And he was a Nazarite, and he wasn't supposed to cut his hair because everything about him was supposed to be committed wholly to the Lord. That's what a Nazarite was. And his mother said that's what she would do with him. And, uh, and his, his, it's a really tragic story. But the point I'm making is that the judges are said to, several of them are said to have the Holy Spirit empower them to do their work. Samson's supposed to deliver Israel from the Philistines. So the Holy Spirit empowers him to do it. You know what Saul's superpower was? What, what the Holy Spirit empowered Saul to do? Remember this? Saul, in the first few chapters of 1 Samuel, is really good at 
Who knows? Recruiting Israel to fight. He's, he's got Holy Spirit empowerment to recruit the army. He can fire them up and get them to muster to go to war. It's the, it's the direct result. As you read, I'd like to show you that, but I don't want to take time. Setting up Psalm 51. There is a special enablement for the king or for the judge of the Holy Spirit that Saul had and lost. And it says in 1 Samuel 13 that the Holy Spirit left Saul and an evil spirit, a demon that God permitted, God sent this demon to torment Saul. So he swapped out. You lost the, the Holy Spirit's empowerment and now you have torment from a demon. I don't believe demon possession, I think demon oppression for Saul. And so David is called in to play the, um, the harp, to play the lyre, to uh, help uh, soothe the savage beast with his torment from this evil spirit from, uh, that, the God, that God has permitted. And, um, and then David receives the Holy Spirit. He is anointed as to be king in 1 Samuel 16, and he receives the Holy Spirit. Uh, there's, a, there's an anointing, that, and the Spirit goes with that anointing. Whoever's God's designated one will be empowered by the Spirit. It's a special work of God in this day. And David will pray in Psalm 51 that the Lord not take his Spirit from him because he knows that God did take his Spirit from Saul. And the wickedness that David has committed, the murder and theft and adultery and all the, the lying and all that he did to, prior to writing Psalm 51, praying Psalm 51, he considered to be grounds for God to remove the Spirit, that I would lose this special privilege that the king alone had of God's presence. I would never encourage you to pray some of the details of Psalm 51 because I don't think they apply to you. I don't think you're a king in Israel under the Mosaic Covenant with the risk that you would lose the Holy Spirit. We're told by the Apostle Paul to the Galatians who have been bewitched and are walking in darkness. That's why Paul wrote Galatians. We're told that they have the Holy Spirit. You cannot lose the Holy Spirit. That's a different arrangement today. And yet I would say you can grieve him and lose his effects in your life. And I would apply Psalm 51 in its entirety in that way. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. One thing I love about the New American Standard translation here is that when there's a different word for sin, they use a different English word that means some kind of synonym for sin. I, I haven't counted them up, but there's at least four or five different words that he will use repeatedly through here for this category of that which transgresses God's righteous character. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you're justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then 
I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Now this is always how people close to God in the Old Testament reason with him. Don't destroy Israel, Moses says to the Lord, because look at all that you've done. Look what the world is going to say. The Egyptians are going to be saying you brought them out here to kill them. Lord, for your own namesake, don't destroy these people. I mean, it's your covenant. And that's how Moses reasons with God on several occasions. When God says, I'm done with these people, I'm going to start over. At, at, um, one clear example is in Exodus 32. See, if you'll fix me, then I'll be useful to you for what I know is your purpose. You want, me, you want us to proclaim your excellencies. You want us to represent you and to teach others about you. So if you'll fix me, if you'll save me from this thing that I've done to myself, then I will bless you. I will speak good things about you to others. And um, it's, not, it's not, you know, God, if you get me out of this jam, I'll promise to be a monk like luther said it's not quite that but it is a good reasoning thing i know what i'll do if you if you'll help me i know the way to go if you'll just get me out of this fish i'll go to nineveh just let me get out of this stinks in here it's awful i might rather die and strangely i'm alive please let me get out of this fish I'm, i'm good i'll go i'll go to nineveh and so David, I'll, I will speak for you. This is very interesting in verse 13, that someone who's guilty of murder and adultery and lying and all the things that he's guilty of is, is so audacious to say, I'll speak for you. I will teach the transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. And he's speaking. And the superscription, I think, is, is legit. I think when it's legitimate. I think when he says, this is when Nathan the prophet came to him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. This is, this is the occasion for writing Psalm 51. This is, this is David's recovery. He knows why he's on earth, and he's looking for usefulness that God would use him. What a, what a cheeky thing to say in the middle of his owning what he's done. But see, the mission hasn't changed. So if you're still going to keep me here, if you're still going to let me keep your spirit, then I know why I have him. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. And my tongue will joyfully sing your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem, then you will delight in righteous sacrifices and burnt offering and whole burnt offering. The young bulls, then young bulls will be offered on your altar. This poem is very effective to us in a very wooden, literal translation like the New American Standard. It's, it's extremely beautiful in the way the King James um, uh, Anglicans translated it. Um, very helpful in how they, I'm not Anglican, by the way, but um, how they translated it uh, in, in a poetic timbre. It's, it's beautiful, but you know what's even better? It's awesome, actually, in Hebrew. It's really good in Hebrew. And so my, my plan over the next several visits on Christian spirituality is to walk through this in some of its detail so that at the end of it, we will have experienced more of the technicolor that we could get from looking at it closely in the way David made his poetic rhyming in Hebrew. The superscription is verse one in Hebrew, but you don't get a verse number. 
And this is a big superscription. It's got two verses of Hebrew that are superscription. So you'll see what I mean in a minute. For the choir director, Melody of David, when Nathan the prophet went into him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And um, this is verse two in Hebrew, in the Hebrew scriptures, the way they numbered it, if you get your Hebrew Bible out, but it's not even verse one in your English Bible. So what I'm trying to say is that your verse one will be the Hebrew text verse three. Isn't that cool? And I'll even show you how I did it. I did it that way by saying verse one is the summary request, but it's verse three on the Hebrew text. So the big title has your verses, your English verses, so you can follow in your Bible. Verse one is the summary request, and I just want you to see some of the fun of biblical Hebrew poetry. Hickory dickory dock, the mouse ran up the fence. Doesn't quite do it for us, because in our English poetry, we need to hear some rhyming. So hickory dickory dock, the mouse ran up the clock. So we rhyme in sound, and some Hebrew poetry does. But that's not the main game. All through the Bible, whether you're in the prophets or in Psalms or in Song of Songs, the, the rhyme is in thought. It's, it's an echo of thought, and it's neat how it works. And if you think that when you're reading a biblical passage like in Jeremiah or Isaiah, and you're like, he just keeps saying the same thing twice, and it's like in verse 5 he says it twice, and then he does it again in verse 10, and it's the same thing, what's going on? You found the, the frame for that poetic stanza. It's a poem. And th- when you see it that way, you're like, oh, okay, I can, I can understand the, the literary genre, so now I can understand how meaning is being conveyed. You understand it in English, but I just want you to experience a little bit in Hebrew. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. I'm translating Chana uh, as be gracious because that's fairly consistent. That's where we get the name for John or Hannah. And Chesed, I'm, I'm translating that loving kindness as a traditionalist. This word is a reference to God's character where he, by faithfulness and his, in his character quality of love, keeps covenant. It's always uh, present when you have covenant language, and it's not always, um, covenant language isn't always present with his chesed, his loving kindness. But this is, a, this is not just something that God has when there's a contract, though. It's part of his very character, it's his loving kindness. Be gracious to me, O God, according to this attribute in your character, your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your mercy, wipe clean my transgressions. Now, I'm borrowing heavily from the Hebrew Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament for some of my glosses, like wipe clean. My Bible says blot out, I think. Blot out, wipe clean. The first, the first suggested gloss they had in the halot was wipe clean. I, I like it for the context. Now, what's interesting is, um, do you notice that you have according to and according to? See that in both lines? Well, guess what happens? He ends the first line with according to, and he begins the second line with according to, which means you have an inversion, and that could be depicted this way. The verbs are be gracious and wipe clean. And in the middle, you have according to your love and kindness, according to the greatness of your mercy. And I believe that when you have this kind of inversion in a Hebrew poetic statement, he's focusing on the thing that ended line one and began line two, God's loving kindness and his mercy. That's my favorite insight, and we may end on this one. Psalm 51 is about the essence of God. It's about his mercy. It's about his loving kindness. It's about his character. This is why David can say, against you and only you have I sinned. 
Well, what about Uriah? He died. What about Bathsheba? What about uh, Uriah's family? What about Bathsheba's family? I mean, holidays had to be kind of weird for the families after this whole event that David, you know the story of David Bathsheba, I assume. I'll summarize it. A rich guy who had all the money looked across the, the way and saw a girl that was married bathing uh, when he should have been somewhere else. And he stole her. He committed adultery with her and he had the power to insist on it. And so there's a question of her willingness or his persuasiveness. But he basically stole this man's wife, impregnated her, and then had the husband killed in order to cover it up. Is that a good summary? That's a lot of Bible we just said right there. A lot of biblical, but that's what, that's what, murder, adultery, you know, and, and all the things. So that's the context where he's bringing this to God. But notice that the focus is not on David's sin, not in verse one. It's on God's character, his loving kindness, the greatness of his mercy. This is the God with whom we deal. This is, the, this is how he makes his appeal. Be gracious to me because of who you are. 1 John 1, 9 says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I find it very interesting that God's character is in the middle of the verse, his faithfulness and his righteousness. You know, he's not faithful and righteous only if you confess your sins. He is anyway. The point is that when you bring it to him based on his character, based on who he is, he washes you clean. That's what he's saying. The focus of the doctrine of sin actually is not our sin. It's the character of God. That's where we need to be. That's where we need to be thinking. That's how David thinks. Another interesting observation in verse 1 is he emphasizes who God is as the focus of his request, but then he emphasizes his sin, and you couldn't show a bigger opposition on these bookends for this verse. And I'm not, I'm not certain that he meant to make that opposition, but it really does jump off the page this way when you put it in its Hebrew order, and it is the order of the word in Hebrew. I mean, the Holy Spirit knows that this was part of it. But God opposed to sin. And this is the summary of the whole psalm. Clean me up because of who you are. Because of your loving kindness. Because of the greatness of your mercy. One, one last thing I want to say as we close. We did verse 1. That's pretty good. One last thing. There's only 19 more. Um, one last thing I want to say about God based on what he's saying here and how this echoes through all of Scripture. Next time someone tells you, well, the Old Testament has the angry God and the New Testament shows the sweet Jesus and so, you know, you really can't put these two together. They don't really fit. That's, a, that's like the easiest thing to refute. Just go to the Ten Commandments where God is thundering at them from the fire and they're, they're afraid they're going to die for the way his voice sounds. Look at what he says about his character and how he loves them. Read it in Deuteronomy 5 when God expands on the discussion of his loving kindness and his affection and he's gracious and merciful to thousands of generations. Yes, there is wrath for sin. There is a a, a recompense because of his absolute righteousness which must be served by his perfect justice. But there is also in this consistent character of God this love 
And that's the cross, by the way. You can't just say, well, I forgive them. There has to be a reckoning. That's righteousness requiring the judgment and justice. That's why Jesus on the cross. But why did God just say, well, forget these people? Because of his love. Love, righteousness, and justice are all hanging between heaven and earth when Jesus paid for our sins on the cross. And this is, this is the character of the God we serve. And this is, the per, this is who you need to think of as your daddy. Abba Father in Romans 8. You're, go, you're going to him like a little child to a beloved daddy and you're trusting him and this is who he is. And when those little thoughts creep in, he doesn't really love me. He doesn't really care. He's, he's just angry with me generally. These little thoughts creep in because we're creeps, not because God is. Remember, Psalm 51.1, the basis for my appeal to God is his character. I'm the one that's flawed. I'm the one that doesn't love. I'm the one that's not forgiving. God, God is awesome. Heavenly Father, we thank you for showing us who you are through the writing of this broken vessel, King David. Thank you that he emphasized your essence so we could feast on who you are tonight. Help us keep this in mind. Live it out, expecting you to do what you said because of your awesome character. We glorify and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.